networking and developing relationships is always going to work best when you are really able to show up focused on how you can add value for other people in your network or how you can add value to this newly formed relationship. Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. This episode was previously recorded and published on the Outperform podcast. Today's quote is one of my favorites, and it is, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with, thought-provoking words from Jim Rohn. Our guest, Derek Colburn, has dedicated his career to the art of unnetworking and breaking down the concepts and practices of traditional networking in both the professional and personal setting. Derek is the author of the number one Amazon best-selling book, Networking is Not Working, as well as the CEO and co-founder of Cadre, an unnetworking community based in Washington, D.C. Welcome to Outperform, Derek. Hey, Bob. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So I'm curious, were you always a strong networker or was that something you developed as your career progressed? I think I probably was because uh, I was the kind of kid growing up that, you know, school didn't come really easily to me. I, I had ADD. I would never, never took medication for it or anything. So I think I fall into the category of people where I had to learn, adapt and learn new skills in order to get by. And that translated into people skills and didn't really sort of start finding my my groove or my niche until probably college when I ran a nightclub, owned a nightclub with uh, another guy, and then began my career as a financial advisor, sort of like my senior year of college. And then that's what I launched into right out of college and I still own a wealth management firm to this day. So I would say it. Um, I wasn't calling it networking back then, but that's kind of like a good background, I guess, backstory. And were there any of the books that you read early on, like Dale Carnegie or anything really influenced you in terms of thinking about your approach to networking? Not really. I uh, I did eventually start taking ADD medication, but it wasn't until about nine years ago when my wife and I were, were a couple months away from having our first son. And I just knew something wasn't right. And I had gotten by and done a, a pretty good job of being really really productive for 30 to 60 minutes a day, but then completely disorganized the rest of the day. And so I was, you know, staying up until one or two o'clock in the morning every night with a bunch of browsers open in my, on my laptop. And I just knew I wouldn't be able to keep it up. So I went and, and got checked out, got on ADD medication. And prior to that point, I had only read maybe 10 books up until that point in my life. And once I started taking ADD medication, I started reading about two books a week, making up for lost time and eventually wrote my own book, which would have just sounded ridiculous to me prior to going down that path. (laughs) So where do you think your passion for networking came from? You know, I think that, uh, so for my wealth management business, I became quote unquote successful in terms of the metrics that industry uses by being really good at cold calling, i.e. handling rejection and not being terrified of, of having people slam the phone down when I called them, having them stand me up for a meeting or an appointment that we had had set up. I was good at that, but I 
couldn't wait to get to a point where I didn't have to make 500 cold calls a day. And networking was sort of like the next natural progression into business development and developing professional relationships. So I, I really sort of like dove in after about five years being a financial advisor. And that's where a lot of my exposure to networking in the professional and traditional sense come from. I think a lot of people struggle to understand, you know, what networking is and how to sort of leverage their network. You probably get a lot of requests. I get a lot of requests when, you know, from people when loose connections, when, when sort of they need something, you know, and it's time to circle around and, and get help with something they're looking for, their career. Can you help? And, in, in, you know, we'll talk about the book and your philosophy a little more, but define a lot at a high level, sort of how you view networking, how you approach the development point of a, of a relationship and, and, you know, in that, if you want what to do and maybe what not to do. Yeah, yeah, sure. So one of the main questions that I get asked a lot is, you know, why is networking not working? And I think that one of the two primary reasons why networking is not working is it's because everyone defines the word or the activity differently. I mean, some people use it as a verb, others as a noun or an adjective. Some people view it as a way to get business. Some people view it as a way to advance their career path. And so the way that I define networking is any activity that increases the value of your network and or the value you contribute to it. And I'm, I'm a big believer that that your success or not when it comes to any networking endeavor is directly correlated with how well you surround yourself with people that have a similar definition or who are there for the same reasons you are. So it's about adding to the network as a whole. Yeah, I think so. And obviously, when you're just starting out, adding to the network as a whole is actually adding to the network, literally. Yeah. Whereas once you have a more evolved network, adding to the network, um, it could just be adding value for the people that are already a part of your network. Interesting. And so what, what would you recommend to that person who just lost their job, is, is, has a bunch of loose connections, and, and, and is you know, under some, some time pressure, and really, this is when they have to feel that they start networking when they need something. I mean, how, how should someone look at or approach a situation like that in order to, to focus on creating value. Because a lot of the times I, I hear people, you know, they read the sort of giver's gain and that's like, what do I have to give? And I, I think that sometimes that's a short-sighted approach. So I'd love to get your take on that. Yeah. I mean, look, I think for somebody that just lost a job that's looking to network, I mean, I would, I would tell them that they're probably screwed. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> but you really don't want to wait until you're at that point, right? Because people can see that you have ulterior motives. People can see that there's a reason if they haven't heard from you in two or three years and all of a sudden you're reaching out. Now, it's a pretty good indicator that that something's changed and, and you need them. And so obviously, networking and developing relationships is always going to work best when you are really able to show up focused on how you can add value for other people in your network or how you can add value to this newly formed relationship. And that always works best, just like anytime you're selling something, right? If you are trying to figure out how you're going to make payroll in the next two months and you are pitching a potential client, you know, in your services, they are probably going to be able to tell there's some desperation there. But when you're in a position when you don't have that worry or that concern, you're going to come across more polished, more more genuine. And I think it's especially true with with developing and maintaining professional relationships. 
Yeah, you know, a, a discussion that came up in a previous podcast, I'd love to get your take on this. It what was sort of the double intro permission. Um, and 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 a lot of people approach this differently because obviously making introductions, I think, is a big part of building the network. But what, what's your rule on, do you do the sort of double opt-in um, from both sides or how do you ensure that those introductions are creating value for both parties? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of that for sure, especially, and I think that like I'm still, uh, relatively speaking, a punk in the ultimate scheme of things, and I'm getting a decent amount of introductions, and I get a lot of people, that, I have a lot of people to reach out to me and ask me to connect them with other people, but I know when I'm the recipient of it and I just get an email that is connecting me with someone without a lot of context, you know, then it's almost always very frustrating for me because I have to do a little bit of homework. I have to do some research to see why I'm being connected with this person. Um, I have to figure out like, are you introducing them to me because I'm a potential client for them or they're a potential client for me? Or do you think that we have certain things in common? And so I, I'm a big believer and a big advocate of, of that permission networking as James Altucher likes to call it. Where both people agree to the introduction. Correct. Now, I will say this. I've got enough people in my network now, and and I know enough about them to where if I know a particular person has a need for a service, and I know that based on their needs that they're going to be a good fit for my friend or my colleague or my client, then I'll make that connection a lot of times. But I feel like for a lot of people, they're just looking to make connections because they think that's adding value for people. But, but in reality, more often than not, it's creating, it's creating work and, and creating a situation where the people involved have to sort of figure out why the connection's happening and, and the burden is on them. Yeah. And, and there's a dynamic, like you said, I, if someone says to me, hey, I really need X. Do you know who does X? Oh, well, sure. Call Derek. He can help you with this. But I, I see the reverse a lot where people say, I really want to talk to Steve uh, about our service because I think he could really use it. And, and that person believes that they're providing value to that person because they're selling that service. But I have no idea whether that person wants or, or is interested in that service. And, and those are a lot more awkward. And I, I really try to avoid those. I'm surprised how many people ask for those sort of introductions. Well, for something like that, you know, I, I think it just comes down to if I'm unsure, I'll send it to Steve is the potential benefactor in your hypothetical. <laughs> yes, hypothetical benefactor. And, and let's say Mary is, has this solution that she is sure that Steve will, will want to buy. And Mary wants to talk to Steve or Steve wants to talk to Mary? Mary asks you to make an intro to Steve because she really thinks Steve's company could benefit by what it is that her company does. Gotcha. Okay. So then what I would say to Mary, and I actually have a couple of email templates, like different variations of email templates like this. Look, I, I'm not sure that Steve would be as receptive to just diving right into a meeting with you to learn more about your company. I have no idea if, if he even has an interest in what you have. For starters, can you do a little bit of homework on Steve to see if there's some common ground or some things in common in a way that I might be able to position the introduction so that it looks like it could be mutually beneficial? Now, the caveat being like all of that needs to be authentic, but I try to, in situations like that, I put the burden of proof back on Mary and say, look, you have to give me more to work with. I can get an email in front of Steve, but if I send this email as is, he's probably going to say no. And I probably won't even send the email because it's going to affect the likelihood of Steve opening up all of my other emails in the future. 
Perfect. That that is very, I think, tangible. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify enabled sites is that they already know who I am and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info the ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash elevate talk a little bit more about the templates you know that is something i've played around with and utilized because i do find that the same situations repeat themselves how many do you kind of have and use probably around 30 and i would say that 50 percent plus are saying no uh, to a variety of of asks and opportunities so like i have a you know, hey, can you write a guest post for my blog? Um, can you be on my podcast? Can we meet for lunch? Can I pick your brain? And I have like a series of emails. And some of them are, the reason I did this is that I, before I had email templates for saying no, I would find myself in situations in real time where, okay, well, how do I respond to this person? I don't want to come across like a jerk. And I actually do like this person, but I just don't have time right now. So I thought if I can identify the scenarios where I'm going to be asked to do things that sometimes I'm not going to want to do, I can spend a little bit of time right now crafting an email that says no with grace, that is done in a way that I feel reflects me well in terms of I'm saying no, but I'm also you know, steering you in another direction or pointing you in another direction. And, and it takes that em- emotion out of play in real time. Because now it's like if I get a request like for the rest of this month, we're talking here like middle of August, right? I'm going to be in town like five days over the next three and a half weeks. And so if somebody's reaching out to me to say, hey, can we meet for lunch so we can talk about this? I have an email that would say, 
and I would have to modify just a little bit in this scenario, but I would have an email that would say, uh, I would love to meet with you, but I just really don't have time in my schedule right now. I'm happy to jump on a quick call with you if that works, but if you want to meet in person, please follow back up with me again, like in mid to late September. Now, if it's somebody that I don't ever want to meet or I don't have enough information as to why they want to meet, I'll have a, a slightly modified version of that email. And it may say, hey, I typically do not do lunch meetings or coffee meetings unless I know why we're getting together. And if it's something that I can potentially help with, would you mind elaborating a little bit more on what I can help you with? And what's crazy is 75% of those people like don't even respond. <laughs> I was going to ask you that before when you said about the, what I've found was you ask people to do some of the work on their part, they opt out and they tell you that that wasn't worth your time anyway. Yep. Uh, is that true for that email template you were saying before when you ask people to kind of invest and look for the connections? Are they like, oh, well, if he's not going to make this easy for me, I'm, I'm out? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, more more than 50% for sure. I would say that my most common email response is somebody wants to meet me in person and I just steer it more towards like a phone call and I use like a Calendly link for a 15-minute phone call in that scenario. It sounds like you have you listened you've listened to the Tim Ferriss podcast on saying no. We should link to that in the in the reference notes. I mean, he has a re- whole podcast that that was based on all the rejection letters that he got. I did hear that. Yeah. (laughs) And how actually templates is a, is a really good way to reply. So Vern Harnish, this is, this is actually, I'd like to dig into this a little more. Vern Harnish, um, big speaker, EO founder says that one of the key CEO metrics is, is the no to yes ratio. I know people are out there asking, and I don't think people appreciate sometimes how many asks some people have of their time. Also, just the 15 minutes, right? Hey, I, one week I counted, I got 15, 15 minute, you know, requests. You know, how, how do you determine what's a yes and what's the no? Like, what's your what's your filter on all these requests? Obviously, if you're out of town, you're out of town. But I assume you have some higher level filters on this as well. Yeah, you know, I, I would like to be able to say, and I have probably said at various points over the past few years that it's pretty clearly defined. But to be honest with you, you know, I right now am sort of in this I'm in like summertime mode and I'm and I'm not in a consistent routine. I have my next big thing that I'm going to work on. I'm really excited about it, but I've already resolved to the fact that I'm not going to really be able to roll up my sleeves and start working on it until the middle of September. And so what I found myself doing like the past week or so is I'm saying yes to more of these requests than I normally do, I think because I'm not super focused and super uh, on my routine the way that I am at other times. So I, I'm pointing this out because I just noticed it. And I think that luck has something to do with it also. Because if any one of these people that I've said yes to over the past week, and it's been about four or five for a 15-minute phone call, if any one of them had emailed me a month from now, it would have been like a hard no, just because I know where I'm going to be in a different place a month from now than I am right now in terms of my focus. And that's probably a horrible answer, but I just was having this. <laughs> no, I, I think that's helpful. You know, I, I don't hear enough people talking about it. I hear two people talking about saying no, but I, I don't think people appreciate it. I mean, what, what would you guess your overall yes to no ratio is for general requests? Uh, gosh, it's hard to say because, I mean, I, there's a lot of people that are an automatic yes for me. If they need me, like I'm dropping everything for them. Yeah. And then there's a lot of people where it doesn't matter when they send the email 
or what they're looking for, like I'm never going to help them. So for me, it's typically if, if I feel like it can add value for one or more people in my network, then I will say yes. If I feel like it's, uh, if somebody's asking me for expertise on something that I don't feel like I'm qualified to give advice on, then I will tell them no, almost always. If somebody is, is asking me to make an introduction on their behalf, if they're one of my people, if they're like a client or a cadre member or a friend of mine, I will spend time working with them to help strategize the best way to make sure something comes as a result of that introduction. But if it's somebody that just wants, if the Mary and Steve analogy, I probably wouldn't wouldn't ever, if or at least not very often, indulge Mary's request in that case. So let's flip that a little bit then and talk about what what does work. So, you know, what are the things that you found work when it comes to developing and deepening professional relationships? And if you have an ask of someone that's kind of a stretch, you know, what what are the things that would work if you were looking at that inbound request to make you more likely to help that person? If I'm the one that's looking for help or if I'm the one that's receiving the request? Yeah, I'm talking about giving the advice to people who are who are sending the request to you. It's sort of a two-part question. You know, how, how how can someone increase the percentage chance that someone who is busy like you would be willing to help them? And then what actually works when, when you establish the relationship, you get that foothold in terms of developing and, and deepening it? Yeah. So I just had to deal with this over the past week. So I've been fortunate enough to become friends with some people who are much more sought after than I am in terms of their attention. So like, for example... Dan Pink's a friend of mine. He did the cover testimonial for my book and we've kept in touch. We've actually had him speak at Cadre a couple of times. And, you know, once people know that I have a relationship with somebody like Dan Pink or Chris Brogan or Adam Grant, then I oftentimes have people now reaching out to me on a pretty regular basis, probably like once or twice a month for all of them individually. And I'm just giving examples of a few people. Yeah. And it's always like, I just want to meet them. And I know, and you know, that if I would connect everybody that wanted to talk to like Dan Pink or Adam Grant, and I connected them with Dan and Adam, like they would quickly like filter my email. So they would like never pay attention to me. And so, so there's some people that obviously I have, I have a certain relationship with. There's other people where it's like, look, I can get an email in front of them, but you need to draft the email as if it's coming from me. And you need to highlight why I'm making the introduction and why it's going to be beneficial to them. You know, and sometimes it's, they want to have them speak. And so I'll then just forward the email to somebody and say, Hey, look at this opportunity. Is it something that you're interested in? Are you available on that date? And then they'll get back to me, but it has to be authentic. I'm going to sort of like sniff it out. But before I make a connection to somebody that I know is getting a lot of requests and I want to make sure that I continue to have a a relationship with them that is providing value and and being useful to them. Yeah. I just want to make sure that it's going to be worth their time. And it's not just somebody that's looking to leech and see what they can get out of them. Yeah, I mean, you said something in there that is so obvious and intuitive to some people, not to others, which is what value is it for the person? I mean, I, I mean, the amount of requests that I've seen over the years where we get a lot of partnership requests at a company and people will write us an email and say, hey, I've got this thing that I would just love to sell it to your customers. Can we get on the phone and talk about how we can be partners and sell it to your customers? You know, we're, we're really focused on selling our own stuff to our customers. So we, right. we had a template, we write back and say, hey, look, it's really about mutually beneficial introductions. If you think you can make introductions for us, we'd be happy to talk. 
and no one would write back. Like, you know, of course, right. <laughs> to what you're saying. But I, I always, I, and I've said this to people, I think I've written it. If I ever wanted to do that, get that same response to a company, I would write the CEO of a company and I would say, hey, you know, our company has been getting all of these requests for a service that we don't know how to do. It seems like your company does it. I'd love to sit down and speak about a partnership. You're absolutely going to hear from that CEO, right? But when you write with a CEO yep. telling him how he can help you by selling his stuff to your company, I'm just shocked that people think that that is a worthwhile approach or even use of any of their time to, to take that approach. It must work sometimes, right? Like, because I agree with you, but I feel like if it never worked, then nobody would do it. And there's still so many people doing it that I have to imagine that that two or three percent of them are actually like responding in a meaningful way every once in a while because I, I don't get it either. Maybe if you send an, a million automated emails and you get ten, then there's no no skin off your back. That might be the right. That might be the magic formula. All right, we're gonna take a quick break and we'll be right back and talk more with Derek. Hi, I'm Adam Grant. As a Wharton psychologist, I've spent most of my career studying two big questions. How do we unlock original thinking and build cultures of productive generosity? With those questions in mind, I recently co-founded a pretty extraordinary community dedicated to discovering groundbreaking ideas while trying to make the world a better place. It's called the Next Big Idea Club. Together, my friends Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Dan Pink, and I search far and wide for the eight most original, most essential nonfiction books of the year, and we send them straight to you. We also interview the authors, and we send you the key insights across video, audio, and text formats. And remember, this is a book club, so when you join the exclusive online forum, you get the chance to discuss every season's selections, not just with other members, but also with me, Malcolm, Susan, and Dan. Get insider insights from Dan Pink, Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Kane, and Adam Grant, and sign up for the Next Big Idea Club today at www.nextbigideaclub.com slash 10 off and get 10% off your subscription. All right, welcome back. Well, Derek, let's talk about Cadre, uh, your the organization that you started. So how did you come up with that name? And, and can you explain a little bit about uh, how it works? Yeah, so, you know, this is going back. Uh, we started Cadre in 2011. And uh, in terms of the naming of it, I think I was just like having fun with a synonym generator. And, you know, Cadre popped up. And then within like a day or two, I was we were trying to think of a catchy acronym to go along with it. So Cadre worked out really well because it's it, in our world, it stands for connecting advocates, deepening relationships exclusively. So it the word itself had the definition that we were going for. And then it nicely worked out to be like a pretty clever acronym, I think, in terms of communicating what we were doing and who we were doing it for. We started Cadre mainly because I had grown my wealth management practice at this point. I had I had like a, a two-year run or so where I grew my wealth management business over 300%, you know, just by focusing on hosting my own types of events. So I stopped going to the bigger events. I found them to be, and still do find them to be not a very good use of, of someone's time, especially if you're a little bit more established in business. And, you know, I, I really grew my practice. And, and I, I would say that if I had to distill what my approach to networking is, it's really client appreciation first and foremost, but but leveraging client appreciation as a client acquisition tool. And so I was providing some great experiences, some great introductions, some great connections, um, some great idea share for my clients and my strategic partners. And, and I was opening it up for them to bring other people to the table as well. And so I was 
checking the box for providing above and beyond service to my clients. And I was checking the box for meeting people that I probably otherwise would not have met. So figured out how to make that work. And I joined a few other networking groups and the focus was always on, you're going to join this group and you're going to get more business. You're going to get something out of it. And I, we thought like, hey, um, what would it look like if we started an organization where our primary mantra was you're showing up focused on how you can add value for other people as opposed to pushing your own stuff in your own agenda? Yeah, a lot of these networking things, the business card collection stuff, and that's everyone showing up focused on how they can get business. It, it, it's like a taking group, not a giving group. Definitely. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. You know, you mentioned Adam Grant before, and, uh, you know, Adam was speaking about your book, Networking, Why Networking is Not Working. He said, Derek Colburn's book offers actionable tips for making connections that create value for everyone involved. If more people followed his approach, we look forward to networking instead of dreading it. So that was interesting. So why, why do you think so many people dread networking? No, I think it's really just because the drain. I mean, first of all, you have the introverts who probably dread it more than the extroverts. Yeah. And for them, it's just having to meet people, having to really be around people that are focused on themselves. You know, one sort of hypothetical that I share that I, I'm pretty sure I mentioned this in my book is this scenario where the different phases uh, of where you are professionally. And so when I'm speaking at times, I'll say, hey, if you had a business that was jam-packed with clients, you had a line of qualified potential clients out the door, but you just didn't have the capacity to serve them, you know, would you ever go to a networking event? And hardly anyone raises their hand. And I think that while really none of us are at that point, some are closer than others. And you get to a point where you have clients to serve and people to manage and a business to run, you have less time to go to networking events. The people that do have a lot of time to go to networking events are people who are just starting out and people that really haven't figured out a better way or more effective way to sell their services. So they keep going to networking events over and over again. And like the million emails and 10 results, I mean, it, it's not that bad, but but hey, look, if you are that person if that's either just starting out or or you're at a point where in your career where you're not rocking and rolling the way you want to be, then I can't argue with going to networking events. I just think that the main reason why a lot of us aren't meeting more of the people that we would like to meet at these events is because those people are busy running their businesses and providing value for clients. 
Yeah, and two things that you said in there that I want to kind of unpack a little bit. I think the first is, it occurs to me it's a little bit like R&D, right? And, and when you have a hot product is actually when you need to be doing R&D for the next product. I mean, one of my friends is a big keynote speaker and I was catching up with him yesterday and you know, he said just out of nowhere, he's just hit a dry spot for two to three months and you know, he'll get, he'll get through it, but now he's reaching out to people. It's, it, it's hard, right? It's hard when you're selling that hot toy to to work on the next one. And I think building your network is, is really a little bit of that R&D investment. Definitely. I agree. hundred percent. And the second thing is, you know, it's interesting. How should introverts in, approach networking? Because it's not that introverts don't like talking to people. I think they, they're, they're happy with a one-on-two or, or, or the one-on-three or small conversations. I think walking into the huge room is the thing that most of them do dread. But do you have any tips for, you know, how introverts should think about networking? Yeah. I mean, most people are surprised to learn that I'm an introvert. Um, I think that I maybe can do the extrovert thing in a way that makes it seem like I'm an extrovert, but I, I'm a big believer. If you're trying to determine whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, I like to say, look at how you like to recharge and how you like to spend your time. And, you know, you could put me in a room at one of my cadre events with, with pretty much everyone there is a friend of mine and somebody that I care about. It's 150 people. You know, if you give me any six of them, I don't care which six, you know, and we get to go out for dinner and hang out and chat for two hours. Like I would take that 10 times out of 10. And so I think that the key is really just to, again, if you're around, if you're making an effort to try to make sure you're around people and at events or involved in experiences with people that are sort of there for the same reason, people that are in a similar situation to you, it's going to be a lot easier and probably even fun and enjoyable to engage in conversations with those other attendees. So are you exhausted after your own events? I am. I'm at the point now where, you know, we've done about 30 of our larger events where we bring in a New York Times bestselling author, speaker, thought leader, what have you. And we do those about four or five times a year. We do a lot of other stuff in the other months where we don't do that. But, you know, after like the third or fourth one that we did, I, I'm just in the habit now, I block off my entire day the next day. And I don't necessarily take off from work, but I make sure I don't have anything important scheduled. I make sure my out of office says I'm not getting back until two days after the event, because I'm definitely not bringing my A game to the table after our events. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I And you alluded to this. I've heard people say, if you walked into the room, you wouldn't necessarily know who's an introvert and extrovert and all the conversations. It's after the introverts would be exhausted and, and the extroverts would be all charged up, right? It, it's sort of <laughs> what happens after the event. Totally. So Derek, we touched on pieces of this, I think, but what one thing you refer to in your book and a lot of your, a lot of your writing is, is what is unnetworking? Yeah, so I... Um... I was a big fan of Scott Stratton's book, Unmarketing, and the way that he defined unmarketing was you had to unlearn everything that you knew about marketing in order to learn this new way to more effectively market. And so I asked him if it would be all right with him for me to use the term unnetworking in my book. He said, sure, go for it. And, and that's mainly the, the reason that I use it, as I feel like in order to more effectively network, you have to sort of throw everything out the window that you previously learned about networking and come at it from a completely different angle. And so what are some of those unconventional strategies that you'd recommend for growing and nurturing a powerful network? Yeah. So, you know, I reference, you know, three types of networking in my book. One is networking 1.0. And I made all these up, so they don't mean anything to anybody <laughs> else. Um, <laughs> networking 1.0 is you're doing it 
because you're trying to benefit from it. You want to get clients, you want to get a new job. And we already touched on who is likely to be at networking events and, and why they're going to be there. Networking 2.0 sort of comes from a lot of books and articles, good books and articles that were written and produced with the best of intentions. Focus on the person that you're meeting for the first time and how you can add value for them. But I think there's some potential pitfalls there when you're showing up because you want to form like a referral partnership with somebody. And in order to provide value for this person, you're likely going to have to introduce them to somebody that you already have a good relationship with. So if I meet an accountant at a networking event and I think he you know, seems like he's got a pretty good a- approach to his business and we want to start getting to know each other better. If I'm going to refer a client of mine to him, I don't know much about him at this point at all. My motivation is really to try to further this relationship with this new accountant, but I'm teeing up potentially an already great relationship of mine. And to me, that is a a high risk, low reward proposition. So what I try to do the majority of the time is practice what I call networking 3.0. And that's when you're not focused on yourself. You're not focused on this other person that you're meeting for the first time, but you're focused on other people in your network that you already have relationships with. And you're sort of serving as a virtual wingman for them. Even if they're not there, you're talking to other people about their businesses, what they're focused on, what their primary challenges or opportunities over the next six months are, and you glean enough information from those conversations to where you can likely make recommendations and suggestions. And in this scenario, you are recommending a partner that could provide an outcome that you know will be very good. You're you're reinforcing to people in your network that you're keeping them top of mind and that you're thinking about them. And for this person that you just met, it's a great way for you to develop a relationship with them because you're showing them that you are a resource, that you can help them solve their problems, even if it has nothing to do with what you provide directly. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and and it's interesting. You talk about that the, in in trying to do things for other people, it can be a little bit of the give and take or horse trading, or where now you have to trade something else, and and you, you can create more problems for yourself, right? Trying to help this new person by putting, to your example before, if you're really trying to impress me by introducing me to Dan Pink for something that he's not interested in, now you've sort of you know ruined two relationships at once. Exactly. And I'm not sure that I fully answered your question. So if you want, I can give you a couple of examples if that would be helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I, lo- I love all the practical. What, what, what is the take home stuff that people can really test out? Yeah. So I've actually hosted over 500 what I call unnetworking lunches. And we do them as part of, you know, about three times a year, we host them for our cadre members. But I, I did this a lot in growing my wealth management business. And, and it doesn't matter what your business is. Um, it doesn't matter where you're situated. I mean, you, you want to find a location. This is going to work much better for somebody that has a, at least a, a localized type business. I mean, if you have clients that are all over the globe, it's going to be really hard to bring all of them together. But maybe right. you're at a conference, maybe you're at an event. But I would invite a handful of clients, a handful of strategic partners, a handful of prospective clients or friends, and I would facilitate a conversation over lunch. Now I pick lunch and I fight, I, I don't fight, but like I, Jason Gaynard and I like always joke back and forth. Cause he's like the mastermind talks guy, but mastermind dinners. 
and I love Jason and I've, I've even started doing more dinners as a result of, of chatting with him. But I like lunches because I'm in DC and traffic is horrible here. Yeah. So if I ever try to do anything early in the morning or or after work hours. We've got people in Virginia, people in Maryland, people in DC. Lunch is really the only time of the day that you can remove the potential for sitting in traffic for an hour. So that's the main reason why I prefer doing lunch. And we find a great restaurant with a private room. Everybody will get separate checks. So I'm not footing the bill for this. And I found that that works better for me because I've had people tell me that they showed up and were more open to coming than they would have been if they thought somebody was picking up the tab because that would have made them think that I was going to be trying to sell them or that they would have to reciprocate in some other way. And I just let everybody have like five, six, seven minutes to talk about their business, to talk about uh, what they're focused on right now, current challenges or opportunities, what their ideal client looks like, and then help in facilitating follow-ups after these lunches. So I started doing this a lot and it's a great way, you know, for anybody to sort of provide value for their existing clients, but also by eventually you do one or two, you start asking them who else do they know that would benefit from attending one of these lunches. You start meeting people that you probably otherwise would not have met. It's interesting when you flip a lot of conventional wisdom on its head, like, you know, where people go to something because it's free versus you're finding people want to go to something because it's not free (laughs) because then they feel like they're not beholden to anyone. No, definitely. Yeah. And that was just more by accident, to be honest with you, than anything else. It wasn't necessarily a strategy. But um, another thing that's worked really well for me are are hosting wine tasting events. And these don't have to be expensive. You could do them at your house. You can do them at your your office. But I'm a big believer that 99% of our problems in business come from us as the business owner making a bad choice on the front end about who we're going to work with. And in order to avoid making that mistake, you know, over and over again, you have to cast a wide enough net. You have to meet enough people so that you can be a little bit picky about who you're working with. And what I realized was that if I have clients that love me and love the service that I'm providing them and they were telling their friends about it, there was still just a small percentage of people that would feel motivated to come in and learn more about me and my firm certainly smaller than the pool of people that would be interested in joining their friend for a wine tasting event. And so I tried to create these scenarios and I, quick little tangent. There was a a study done in the insurance industry a couple years ago, and it said that about 10% of clients of insurance agents actually loved their insurance agents. The good news is 90% didn't love them. But the bad news was that only 10% actively disliked them and were looking for a new relationship. And that's where referrals and Google come into play. So the 80% in the middle, I call them our biggest competitor and our competitor is indifference. They're just indifferent to another option and they like their existing provider fine. They don't think they have to make any changes or extreme changes. So they're never going to come into somebody's office to hear an initial pitch. But a lot of those people will show up to really cool events or to hear really cool speakers or to drink good wine with their friends who are your clients. And that's a great way to begin the process of disrupting that indifference. That's very good advice. And I, hopefully a lot of people have just had a light bulb go off in their head and figure out how to how to adapt that for their business. Because I, yeah, we are really focused more at Acceleration Partners on these smaller curated events rather than handing a conference a large check and hoping that they have our best interest in heart. So it's something we're, we're focused on a lot too. 
So I got one last question for you. We always like to end with what can we learn from? So what's a networking mistake along the way you've made that you learned the most from? Uh, Sure. So going back to sort of what I was talking earlier about networking 2.0, I didn't always have that advice if someone asked me. And so early on in my uh, relationship building endeavors, you know, I was meeting people that I was hoping that we would become sort of referral partners. Um, I would send them business, they would send me business. And and very early on, I met somebody that, you know, hit it off with them, thought that they were going to be a good fit for, for some of my clients. And I referred one of my best clients to this person. And my client about two weeks later called me up to let me know that they took a meeting with this professional that I recommended and they were giving them like a hard sell 45 minutes into their initial meeting. And so that really made me rethink why I was introducing people and connecting people. And at the end of the day, if I'm being honest, you know, I was making that introduction. It wasn't because my client said they had a specific need. My client had another provider that they liked just fine. I just hyped this person up and was mainly doing it in hopes that if I sent them business, they would ultimately send me business. And so ever since then, I've been very careful about not recommending my clients and my friends to people that I just met until I learn more about them and their business. And I've really just tried to focus primarily on, again, being that resource or that representative of my existing relationships to people that I'm meeting for the first time. Wise words, and hopefully you've saved someone else from making that mistake because I'm guessing it's a common one. Yep. Thank you. Derek, it was great having you join us on Outperform today. Uh, You're clearly making strides in transforming, I think, the way business leaders approach connections and making them much more meaningful and authentic. Well, thank you so much. I'm a big fan of your show, and I was thrilled to be here chatting with you. All right. Well, to our listeners, you can learn more about Derek, his book, and his business on this Outperform episode page on our website and in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, keep outperforming. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.